0: Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 135. Remember on Episode 134 when I said, whatever happens on Saturday happens. If they win, that's awesome. If they lose, we never expected them to be here. You can't hurt us. This team has already exceeded expectations. You cannot hurt us the way you have in the past, Green Bay Packers. Well, cut to 36 hours later. What are you? An idiot sandwich. Idiot sandwich works. An idiot sandwich, Chef Ramsey. Once again, I am an idiot sandwich. Because we went through on Saturday what we've seen so many times in the last 15-ish years. Playoff heartbreak. The seven-seed Packers on the road against the one-seed 49ers. Their hated rival the 10th meeting in postseason history, and the Packers outplayed them for 58 minutes, and we once again had our hearts ripped out at the end. Not as bad as some of the prior playoff heartbreaking losses, but when you go into a place like that against a team that has owned the Packers in recent history and you play as well as the Packers did and you coach as well as they did to come up short the way they did is a tough pill to swallow, a bitter pill still here on a not-victory Monday. We'll go over the whole deal. The defense dropping a couple picks. Anders Carlson, that last Jordan Love throw into triple coverage across his body. So many things that if they go one way, maybe the Packers are able to get a victory and they're in Detroit this weekend for an NFC Championship game, but not to be. We'll touch a little bit on the Bucks and college hoops as well at the end. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's yes, time. The ball. Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20. Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan a smash up the middle, face hit the center. Here comes Gomez, Around third, a throw and the Brewers win. Here's the snap. He looks, he throws it. And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, cleans in. has the foul, and a ball throws it down! Swinging fly ball in the right center, Broxton is there, and they're the champions! They have done it! It's been a 50-year journey, Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world! at least the good news is that because of the prior Packer playoff history, nobody is better prepared for this. Nobody has more built-up scar tissue. Maybe Buffalo. We'll talk about the full NFL recap. The Bills may actually have much more scar tissue than the Packers fans have. Both franchises' fan bases have suffered through some tough heartbreak in the playoffs. But at least the Packers do have a couple of Super Bowl championships to their credit. The Bills don't have that, and they went through another wide-right situation on Sunday. They may have slightly more scar tissue, but we've got plenty of it. Nobody's been built more for these moments than Packer fans over the years. It's like Bane in Batman. You adopted this pain. We were built by it. We were molded by it. So what we're going to do is it's so hard to compartmentalize the game itself and the long view. We're going to do a little micro-macro here where we look at just this game and we take out all of the context of the young team and the upside and how bright the future is, we're just going to look at this game on a micro level. And then on a macro level, we'll take a long-range view where, you know, at some point the sun's going to swallow the earth and no one's going to remember this anyway. I mean, that's in the forecast, right? I mean, macro view as in how this team looks going forward, things we're still very excited about in the near future, things they maybe need to work on. But I do think you need to break this apart because I didn't think I was going to get hurt with playoff heartbreak on Saturday. I guess I kind of thought they were either going to win this game by three points or lose it by 21. I didn't see this kind of a game where it's close the whole way and they have a late lead and then just little things. This buildup of a ton of little things working against them end up costing them in a game where they were the better team. That's what hurts about this single game. The Packers were the better team. Anybody who watched that game, and most Niners fans I saw on Twitter after the game on Saturday and even on Sunday, most Niners fans that I know were looking at that game and saying, how do we get a win there? And that's what really hurts when you're the fan of the team that lost, when you're the 7 seed and you're a fan of the 7 seed and it's such a close game and the fans of the 1 seed at home that were supposed to win by 10 points, what was the spread? 10 or 10.5 10 or a couple of touchdowns. And that team's fan base is saying, man, how did we escape that? That's what really hurts as the Packer fan base still here on Monday. Looking at it on a micro level, just looking at this game, I do want to touch on the refs real quick. This is going to be kind of a verbal diarrhea 20 minutes here because there's just so much to it. I do want to touch on the refs. The Packers did not lose this game because of the refs. They didn't help. But this is not a, worst my audio, my nuts and bolts, we got screwed. Nuts and bolts, we got screwed. Third down. This is not that. This is not the fail Mary in Seattle or something like that where one call legitimately does cost you the game. There were some things, though, and most, I guess, objective fan bases or fans that I saw on Twitter and Facebook and social media seem to think the game was called kind of in favor of the Niners or at least some of the big calls that could have gone the Packers way didn't. When we talk about the refs, to me, there are just a couple of instances. Number one, when the Packers were up 3 nothing, and they were driving inside the 9 or 15-yard line, the spotting of the ball, not just on fourth down, but on third down too. On that third down run, Aaron Jones looked like he had a first down. They spotted that back about a half yard or a quarter of a yard from where it looked like it should have been on TV. And this was a problem all weekend, by the way. This wasn't just the Packers-Niners game. I can't recall, and maybe Niners fans would tell you, there were plays or instances where they felt they got a bad spot. If you watched football all weekend, this happened a ton. What we saw happen on that drive against the Packers where officials were spotting the ball. It looked like at least a half a yard back from where it should have been spotted. They should have had the first down the Aaron Jones run on third and short. Then they do the love shove on fourth and less than a yard or fourth and half a yard. And it looks like he gets across that line and they had a bad spot again. Now I've heard varying reports of Whether or not that's even challengeable, I guess there are some rules where on fourth down, when there's a measurement, they look at it in the booth, kind of like they look at certain turnovers or under two minutes or whatever, that LaFleur couldn't challenge it. Because I know in the moment, myself, like a lot of Packers fans were probably saying, well, why don't you challenge it? Maybe there's a chance you get that overturned, even though I don't think that that's likely either. How many times do you see that on a close call like that, where it's fractional and it's 15 bodies all piled up in the middle of the field? and they call it short, and then they review it, how many times do you see them come back and actually give them the extra quarter yard or half a yard or whatever you need, three chain links in this instance? How many times does that happen? If this were a challengeable play and the floor did challenge it, I think at best you're looking at a 5% chance that they actually move that ball forward and you get the first down, you have first and 10 inside the 15-yard line. I have read a couple of different blogs that have said that when you measure on fourth down like that, they do look at that spot in the booth in the moment. Maybe it's not even a play where LaFleur could have thrown that red challenge. Like, I'd have to investigate that a little bit further. I did read a lot of that this morning, too. Both of those spots stunk. And on that play, on the fourth down play, when you look at the still shot from the side, the Niners were offsides. And remember, I forget what Packer game it was. Was it the Chargers game or the Rams game? Where the Packers got called for that at least two, maybe three times in the game. And we talked about it on the podcast. It just looked like there was an emphasis from the NFL to regulate the tush push and the Eagles effectiveness with that in Jalen Hurts. It looked like they were trying to regulate that out of the game by calling these offsides penalties on offensive linemen. The Niners were offside. The Niners had two of their defensive linemen with their noses basically over the nose of the football. They were in the neutral zone. That could have been called too. The other call, there was an Aaron Jones face mask, but I think the Packers scored on that drive anyway. The other big call was before the George Kittle touchdown. That made it a 7-3 to three game, Niners in front 7-3. to three. Right before that, Purdy had a throw down the near sideline where there wasn't anybody in the vicinity. There wasn't anybody within 15 yards of it, and he was clearly in the pocket. That should have been intentional grounding. What was weird about that one was nobody even talked about that. Even in the booth, Burkhardt and Olsen did not touch on that at all, that that would be a possibility. I think they did get flagged for illegal man downfield on that play, which cost him five yards. But obviously, if you get called for intentional grounding, that's a loss of down, and it's a far greater yardage loss. They would have been in a third and long situation had that been marked off properly. Do they score a touchdown that drive? It's hard to say what happens after that. It feels less likely that they score a touchdown, because I'm pretty sure they scored on the next play when it was, whatever it was, second down and 13, or after the five-yard penalty, second down and 12, whatever it was. They get that touchdown to George Kittle. Do they get that if it's third and 17 or third and 18? I don't know. Feels a lot less likely, right? To me, those were some of the big calls. I don't think I'm missing anything there. There were calls throughout the game that probably could have gone either way. And the Packers did not lose this game because of officiating. But especially in that instance on the fourth and one, I thought the spot of the ball was horrific. And then to not call the Niners for offsides there was also frustrating. If you're a Packer fan, just get the ref conversation out of the way. All right. Packers take the ball to begin the game just like they did against the Cowboys. And just like they did against the Cowboys, they score. They didn't get the touchdown. They get the 3 nothing lead. Then they get a stop. And then we had that next drive, which is the fourth down situation. They get inside the 9 or 15-yard line. Could you have kicked a field goal there? Is anything guaranteed with Anders Carlson? We learned later in the game it was not. He did hit two chip shot field goals before that big miss late. That's another conversation of what ifs that you could have. What if they kick a field goal there, which would have been a 31 or 32-yarder? Feels pretty makeable, right? and you take a 6-0 lead there instead of going for it. I still like going for it. You have a chance to get up 10-0 and really assert yourself the way they did against Dallas when they got that early two-score lead. After that, it's kind of a sluggish first half. The Niners get that touchdown to Kittle. Packers got their second field goal in the second quarter to make it a 7-6 to game. And then the Packers special teams which, outside of the Carlson Miss, actually played one of their better games. They get the block of the field goal from Moody at the end of the first half, so it could have been 10-6 to with the Niners getting the ball to begin the second half. Instead, it stays a 7-6 to game. When you add that blocked kick in with the Keyshawn Nixon return late in the third quarter that Eric Wilson deserves <laughs> some kind of medal for, when Keyshawn Nixon broke that one, got inside the 20, and the ball popped loose, there were five Niners, and there was one Eric Wilson. And Eric Wilson was the only Packer player that could have recovered that. If not, that was going to San Francisco. That's another part of this game that's annoying if you're a Packer fan. The special teams, with the exception of the Carlson Miss, actually played pretty well. A couple of game-changing plays, one that saved three points and one that directly led to seven points and the touchdown. I think that was the touchdown of Tucker Kraft after that big return by Nixon. 7-6 to six game at halftime. Packer defense comes out on that opening drive of the third quarter. They get the three and out, so they get the ball right back, and they end up going on a nine-play 75-yard drive. That was the Bo Melton touchdown. Some of these schemes Matt LaFleur called late in the year, the scheme up for Luke Musgrave where he was wide open in Dallas, and this scheme for Bo Melton. He's just – he had been on such a heater, and that was a that was a catch by Melton where I did take a moment where I thought, oh, God, did he bobble it? Did he get both feet down? But replay showed he did. They don't go for two in that instance. They get up 13-7. to seven. Then you get the Niner response on a four-play, 75-yard drive on the Christian McCaffrey, 39-yard touchdown run, just bad tackling by Darnell Savage. He had him up the middle, would have been a five- or six-yard gain, couldn't complete the tackle. That's been a problem for Darnell Savage. Tackling has been an issue for the Packers all year, but when you look at Darnell Savage's career – he has not been the best tackler, especially open field tackler. I think he tried to go with, like, a shoulder tackle on Christian McCaffrey. What are we doing? 39-yard touchdown run made it 14-13. And then you got the big return from Nixon, the massive recovery from Eric Wilson. It ends on a bullet. Jordan loved a Tucker Craft. When you see the replays of this pass, incredible that he was able to put it right on the numbers just outside the reach of that Niner linebacker that was crashing the passing lane. Gets to Kraft for the touchdown. They go for two. Another great scheme where Jones ends up wide open. Throw was a little bit high, but Jones able to reel it in. And that made it 21-14 with five minutes left in the third quarter. There are two moments in this game where I start to really think, holy cow, are they going to win this game? Are they actually going to go on the road and beat Dallas, whoop up, up on Dallas? And then they're going to go into the one seed and exercise the Niners-Demons too. That was the first time I had that creeping thought. Oh, God, there's only five minutes left. You've got a 21-14 to 14 lead. It seems like things are clicking in. At that point, Love had two touchdowns and no picks. Then we get to the fourth quarter. Niners able to capitalize on an interception, a throw over the middle from Love that was behind Tucker Kraft. One of those unfortunate things where eight times out of ten, that probably just ends harmlessly on the turf, but not for the Packers and not in the playoffs and certainly not against the Niners, where Kraft just gets his fingertips on it and that puts the ball in the air for just enough time for the Niners to get the interception. They have a short field. Credit to the defense, though. They hold them seven plays, 14 yards. That's all they gave up, and they limit them to a 52-yard field goal. It's a pretty good effort from the defense there. Jake Moody hits that 52 yard to make it 21-17. And then we get – I think there's one more possession there, and then we get the big Aaron Jones run. This is where I thought they're going to win. This is really where I allowed myself, despite the torment of these Packers playoff matchups since the Super Bowl run of 2010 and all the different foibles and miscues they've had – This is where, oh, John, oh, Jonathan, you idiot. I started to really believe. They were inside their own 10-yard line on a pitch. Jones goes 55 yards. When he broke into the clear, I thought he was gone. I thought it was a touchdown. He gets tracked down from behind, cuts back, gets an extra five yards. But at that point, you are at the 9 or 35-yard line, first down and 10. And you're thinking, all right, we're at least going to get a decent field goal attempt here. At minimum, you can make this 24-17 game. If you can finish this drive, it's probably game over at that point. It would have been 28-17 with, I don't know, six minutes left or seven minutes left or maybe even less than that. If you could have cashed in there. That's probably it. Emmanuel Wilson had a run for a first down on that drive, and they just stall out. It was an incomplete pass on first and 10. Then Jones got bottled up for two yards on second down and 10, led to a third down and eight. Niners brought that pressure, and Love just had to get rid of it. Incomplete pass leads to the infamous, the now infamous Anders Carlson, 41 yards. It's not like we were even talking about a 50-yarder or even a 48 or 49-yarder, and the conditions weren't great. It was windy. It was rainy. I get it. But 41 yards and right off of his foot, just the angle of it, you could just see that baby was going to bend back outside. Just like the Mason Crosby kick in Dallas seven years ago or eight years ago, bent back inside the goalpost. You could just tell off of his foot it was going to be tight, and then it just airs to the left a little bit. He misses, and that's when the, oh no, (laughs) that's when that settles in. 10 seconds later or before or whatever it was 2 or 3 minutes before after the after the Jones run that's when I started to fully believe and literally 3 minutes later in real time I thought oh god and you just knew the Niners were going to take that momentum they were going to go down the field and get a score of some kind or get a touchdown and get the lead and then the only question in my mind at that point was would you have enough time? They had three timeouts. Would you have enough time and timeouts to try to get back down the field, get a game-tying field goal, or get back down the field and get a game-winning touchdown? It felt inevitable, though, didn't it, after the missed kick that the Niners were going to be able to score? I kept on pacing around my living room. My wife will tell you I was very annoying. She said, you're really making me uncomfortable right now. was pacing, pacing, biting my shirt, hands on my knees, getting in the crouch, you know, the whole deal, saying give me one play. I kept on muttering that during that Niner drive that ends up in the McCaffrey touchdown, the go-ahead touchdown. I guess, give me one play. Give me one play. Please give me just one. Just give me one play. Give me a turnover. And they had a chance. The biggest play on that drive was the third and five near midfield, and Keyshawn Nixon had tremendous coverage, blanket coverage on Brandon Ayuko. It had a quiet game. Purdy put it in about the only spot that IU could get it. That was Purdy's best throw of the day. Purdy was not good. I know the raw numbers are going to say he had a better day than Jordan Love because of those two late picks from Love in the fourth quarter. Obviously costly and cost him everything. Well, Purdy did not have a good game. That was an elite throw. Nixon had his hand in there, just couldn't quite dislodge it. That led to a first down. They would have gone for it on fourth down. But then you're one play away. Then you, that's it. You're one mistake. One in the rain a slip of the football or a drop or something like that. You're one play away from getting it back, taking three knees, and the game being over. That was easily Purdy's best throw of the day. They get downfield, get to the six-yard line, then McCaffrey marches in. I saw some conversation on Packer Twitter about was this a Terrell Davis, Super Bowl 32? let them score. At that point, you had a minute and five left. I don't know also why the play before that with three timeouts, LaFleur did not call a timeout to preserve some time. If he calls a timeout and then they score, you have a minute 40 left in two timeouts instead of a minute and five and three timeouts. I guess a coach or an analytics person would have to tell you what's the better situation. In my mind, the minute 41 with two timeouts is better than a minute four or a minute five with three timeouts. I could be wrong. There's, I'm sure there's some algorithm, there's some playbook that they can look at that says, da, 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 here's what we should do here. It just feels like they should have called a timeout there. And then did they let him score? I don't think they let him score. It just had that look to it. And it's actually kind of fortunate that they did. If they just get the first down there, because remember, they could have gotten a first down on a one-yard pickup. If they just get a first down there, then – It's all the marbles. It's four plays inside the five. The Packers likely aren't going to get the ball back with any kind of time. And if you get the stops, you win. And if you don't, you lose. As it stood, he got in the end zone. You get down. But you've got a minute five and three timeouts and a chance for a legacy drive for Jordan Love. Unfortunately... Probably the worst throw. Not probably. It was the worst throw that he made probably since Vegas, I would say. Remember, he had three picks in that Vegas game. One of them was right to a middle linebacker. Probably his worst throw since that throw in early October. Just a bad decision. They get one first down on the drive. The most agitating part of the throw, and there were a million things to be annoyed about with that throw and that decision. It was first down. I mean, it was first and ten. If it was 4th and 10 or it was 3rd and 18 and it was last gasp time and you had to have a play and you just chuck it to somebody hoping somebody can make a play, I get it more. On 1st and 10, though, man, just live to fight another down. And he copped to it in the postgame. He, had, he gave the Matt LaFleur hand up. He said it was a bad decision and there was no reason to throw it there. Should have thrown it away. That was the smart play and I'll learn from this and I'll grow. And that's what you want to hear from your young ascending star quarterback. It was just mind-boggling with how good he has been and how good the offense has been that that was the decision that ultimately ends the year. A lot went into the, the reasons they lost the game, but in that moment... Throwing across your body to the middle of the field into triple coverage. That was a Brett Favre special. We've had a lot of debates all year and conversations of, is Jordan Love more like Aaron Rodgers? Is he more like Brett Favre? Is he some kind of love child between the Favre gambler mentality and Rodgers limiting turnovers the way that he's played the last nine or ten weeks? That was classic Favre. That was Favre after fourth and 26. That was Favre in Philly when the Packers had the ball and a chance to win, just whipping it into triple coverage, getting intercepted. And that was the end of that game and that playoff run in 2003. It was one of those kind of throws of effort. Hopefully, somebody's down there that can make a play when you could have lived to fight another day. The throwaway was the logical play there, and you just get to second down and 10. You're at, on your 35, and you still have two timeouts and 47 seconds left, or whatever it was, 52 seconds left. You live to fight for another down. I saw some conversation about why didn't he run there. When you look at the replay, Bosa had him on the edge. I don't think he gets anywhere, although a sack would have been better. I mean, at that point, you would have taken a sack, given what we saw, what the result was. You would have preferred even the sack, and you lose five or six yards. You take one of those last two timeouts. You still have 50-ish seconds left, and you have a chance yet to do something. As it stands, unfortunately, Jordan Love made probably the worst decision he has made in 10 weeks and the worst decision he probably made all year in a big moment, and we just hope he does learn from that. And if they're in this similar situation next year in a playoff game, and the clock is winding down, and you're trying to put together a drive to tie the game or get the lead, that he doesn't do that exact same thing. I think he will. He seems to be a smart quarterback, a cerebral quarterback. He learned from mistakes in the beginning of the year, and we didn't see them really repeated until that moment. I think he will learn from that moving forward. Just a mind-numbing throw to end the game. And like I said, on a run right now for the offense in Love that had been pretty much immaculate, this is how good the run they've been on offensively and Jordan Love has been on? When he was running on that play, on that final play to the near side, and when he cocked it and threw it across his body, the way things have been going in the last 10 weeks, I am so conditioned to seeing Love throw the ball downfield and somebody being wide open. That was my expectation. I expected some breakdown in coverage and somebody to be wide open in the middle of the field when the camera panned to the right and all you saw was nine red. You just got filled with that dread of, oh boy, here we go. But before that, in the moments before, if I could only go back to living in that space and time, in the moments before the throw, with the run that this team had been on, especially on offense and especially the love, the run Love was on, I just expected Bo Melton or somebody or Jaden Reed to be wide open in the middle of the field. That was not the case. They get the interception, and the Niners finish off a 24-21 to 21 win, like we said, that had their own fans saying, how did we win that game? Now, this was a team loss. You're going to see a million different takes about that love throw or Anders Carlson or whatever. It doesn't come down to one guy. And I think Carlson of everybody's probably taking the most heat. I also think of the Adam Sandler, the lonesome kicker. <laughs> People think it's so easy to kick a field goal from a 30-yard line. <laughs> they forget to add seven yards for the snap and ten more because the goalposts are pushed way back. This is such a good song. It's popped into my head immediately. I feel most fans, especially casual fans, looking back on this game say... You knew the kicker was an issue all year long. He missed more kicks than anybody in the NFL. He wasn't especially good in college either. I remember even with the when they drafted him in the sixth round, you looked at those numbers and saw seventy percent, sixty-eight percent, seventy-two percent. Thought, okay, maybe they can turn him into something. His brother became after a couple of bad years in Minnesota, he became an elite kicker for Rich Bisace in Oakland. That's a part of the reason that they drafted Carlson was because of Bissach's familiarity with that last name and with those brothers, and he just he thinks he can make Anders the same thing that Daniel Carlson has become now in his time in Vegas, or in Oakland at the time. That's the reason they took him. It's been up and down all year. The one game-winning kick that he had to make, he did make the short one in Carolina, the 33 or whatever it was, 34 yard to get them that 33-30 win, but the missed extra points, I mean, every week it felt like he was missing kicks. He wasn't especially good between 40 and 49. He was 4 of 9 for the year and missed 4 of his last 5 in that range from 44 to 49. That's a range you want to see more, 70, 75%. It's just one of those things where all year, it's like 2022, when you just knew the special team was going to cost him, and all year it was a talking point, all year it was a question for LaFleur, and then they got in that playoff game against the Niners again in the division around this time at Lambeau Field. They get into that game, and what cost them 10 points in that game? And we talked about it all year. It felt like the same thing with Carlson, where it's been a discussion point the whole season. He's missed a ton of kicks, especially as of late, and you got this bad feeling that if in a playoff game we need him to hit something, he's not going to be able to do it, and he didn't. That's probably number one on the victim list on Packer Twitter right now of who people are blaming. But this is a team loss. You had the Carlson missed kick. You had Jordan Love making some bad decisions late. The Zach Tom injury did not help, by the way. I don't know how many people have been over that. Zach Tom left that game. It had to be one of the independent neurologists that called him off the field, and he did not return. He did not play in the final four drives of the game, and the final four drives when something like interception, missed field goal, interception, turnover on death, something like that. I forget what they all broke down as. They were bad without Zach Tom out there, without him anchoring the right side of that line. And as we talked about on Friday, not a coincidence that this offense started to kick it into high gear as that young offensive line started to gel in the middle of the year. Well, you take your right tackle out of there and put Yash Nijman in there against Nick Bosa. That's a mismatch. It's, it's a mismatch with Bosa against anybody, but you feel better with Tom out there. I don't think it's a coincidence either that when Zach Tom left and there was more pressure on Jordan Love, we saw some errant throws, some rushed throws, and some rushed decisions from Jordan Love without his right tackle out there. The offense was culpable. The defense was culpable. Of course, they had an opportunity for two picks. The Darnell Savage one early in the game was right in his midst. It looked like it was going to be identical to the pick six he had in Dallas. It was right in his mitts. He couldn't reel that one in. Keyshawn Nixon had a chance in the game as well that went right through his fingertips. Also, we talked on Friday that they were going to need something defensively like that. Like they got in Dallas with the pick six from Savage and the interception from Jair. They got two of them in Dallas. My feeling was they needed one. You'd need one of those things, a strip sack, a pick, something like that to go your way if you're going to win in San Francisco. And they had their chances, and they couldn't capitalize. They had two golden opportunities, one for Nixon, one for Savage, and neither one of them could reel it in. So this was a team loss. Special teams with the missed field goal, the missed interceptions by the defense, and then allowing the Niners to march right down the field for the go-ahead score. And you had the poor decisions and last – Four drives were not good for the Packer offense, which culminates in the bad decision that ends the game, throwing across your body in the triple coverage. This was the definition of a team loss for Green Bay and San Francisco. But what is just so painful about this loss is you finally had a game where it kind of looked like Lafleur outcoached Kyle Shanahan for once, and they had it, and they were in the driver's seat. It was like that Seinfeld where George gets out on a high note. I had him, Jerry, and then and then I lost him and then i that's that's how it felt for this packer game on saturday they looked like they were finally about to do it and beat the niners in a playoff game and LaFleur is going to be Kyle Shanahan in a playoff game and they just could not get it home in that fourth quarter in a 24 to 21 loss season ends the macro view that's the micro view i mean you lost a game you should have won you i don't care throw the seeds out throw the youth out that was a game in a vacuum In and of itself, the Packers had a chance to win, should have won, and did not win. The macro view is that this team hopefully is moving forward as one of the better teams in the NFC, and a team that should compete again for division titles and home playoff games, and hopefully they get back to this stage and it ends a little bit differently. You've got your franchise quarterback. We said all the way back in August, in July— that is the number one goal for this season, to figure out if Jordan Love is the guy. Whether it's a yes or a no, to figure out if he's the guy, the answer is a resounding yes. He puts up the numbers he puts up in the final 10 weeks. He gets on the fringe parts of the MVP conversation, gets this team into the playoffs, Gets them a, helps get them a playoff victory over the two seed in Dallas, and just about knocked off the number one seed at their place in the divisional round. He's the guy. That'll be the number one talking point of the offseason. We can talk more about offseason stuff as we go forward. We've got a lot of time now between now and July to go over all of that. That, to me, is going to be the number one check mark for Brian Gutekunst in the offseason once they get past the draft. Restructuring that deal, probably going to cost 50-ish mil or maybe even more a year. That's going to be the going rate for an ascending young quarterback who looks like he's going to be a star. I would guess a five-year, four-year, five-year extension in the 250 range. But he is the guy. So we know that. That was the number one. Everything else was gravy. That was the number one thing you had to figure out, and they got that figured out. And then you just look at the youth on this team. That wide receiving room is going to come back pretty much intact. I know LaFleur said at the end of the game there's a lot of turnover, and that's what's sad about a loss like this. This team, as it is right now, is not going to be fully back. That's true. But a lot of those parts, the tight end room you feel great about now with Musgrave and Tucker Craft. All of the young wide receivers, will you supplement that with another draft pick of a wide receiver, or or can you sign someone? They're going to have more cap room now. You would assume Bakhtiari comes off the books. I don't know if they're going to re-sign him and bring him back with the way Rasheed Walker played at the end of the year. His number comes off the books. There's a lot of free money. The Rodgers number comes off the books. They could maybe add a free agent wide receiver. As it stands now, though, if they didn't touch the wide receiver room, we feel pretty good about it, right, with Watson and Dobbs and Bo Melton even, and Dontavian Wicks, and Jaden Reed. There are a lot of weapons there. Malik Keith, who was a healthy scratch on Saturday because they had so many other options. Even if you didn't do anything with that, you feel good about that going forward. There are pieces on the defense you feel good about in the front seven. Certainly they have to add there, like they have been in every draft, it seems like, since the dawn of time. They are going to need to add something there. Maybe that's a spot where you could spend some money in free agency. Overall, though... This is the youngest team in the league, the youngest team since, what, 1970 to make the playoffs, the youngest team since 1970 to win a playoff game. Nothing is guaranteed and there's no guarantee you're going to get back to this spot ever again where you had the team rolling the way it was and you have a lead on a one seed in the fourth quarter at their place. I get all that. And that's if you're a glasses half empty person, that's probably how you're feeling. You never know if you're ever going to get back here. Think about the Jaguars. The Jaguars last year with an ascending quarterback, it looked like in Trevor Lawrence and a lot of good young weapons. They beat the Chargers in comeback fashion. They make the divisional round. They're a vogue pick then to make a deeper run this year, and they come up short. They start 8-3. and three, They fall apart at the end of the year. They don't make the playoffs. That's an example of what you hope is not going to happen, but you have so many talented pieces that are young and under control contract-wise. It's hard to not be excited about next year. The bummer about next year is what we talked about on Friday. This is the only year we're going to get now where you're free and clear of expectations. You just want to figure out if you have a franchise quarterback and everything else is just fun. Well, next year... I would guess they are going to be a team picked close to the Lions to maybe win the NFC North. The Lions will obviously be the odds-on favorites unless something crazy happens in the offseason. Packers should be right behind them, though. Packers had an over-under of 7.5 wins coming into this year. Cha-ching. My guess is they'll be in the 9, 9.5 range going into next year, and we're going to be back to expecting them to compete for a division title and get home playoff games and make a deeper run than they did this year, which would be the NFC Championship game or getting all the way back to the Super Bowl. The future is bright for this team, and that is the macro view, and that never changed despite another piece of playoff heartbreak courtesy of the Green Bay Packer Football Club. I add on my rundown list here some things you can go over for next year. Joe Barry will be a big one too. Did he save his job? One part of that conversation that I had not really considered when I said a week or two ago that I think he saved his job based on what they did against Minnesota and Chicago and Dallas, his contract is just up. So, like, right now, he is not the Packer defensive coordinator they would not have to go out of their way to fire him, I guess. So I didn't really factor that into the thinking of Joe Barry that now you have to actively re-sign him to what would have to be a two- or three-year extension. Maybe they just let him walk because he's not in contract or under contract and you don't have to fire him. That's an element of that conversation that I had not considered, that because his contract just ran out, they could just let him walk and make a decision a different way. It's a much more difficult decision, especially if he's your friend, That you would have to fire somebody as opposed to just, okay, we're going to go in a different direction and we wish you nothing but the best of luck. Your contract is up and you're out the door. That'll be something for the offseason as well. I do think the two biggest needs, you have to bring in a kicker to compete with Anders Carlson. I know people want him cut. They're not going to cut him. They spent a draft pick on him. The numbers during the year were not good, but they weren't horrible either despite all of the misses late in the year. And with a kicker? You want him to reach his potential, whatever that is, maybe he already has. But with a kicker, we see it so often where, okay, the Packers suffer this heartbreak, and the kicker misses a big kick, a very makeable kick, a kick Mason Crosby makes. There are a lot of Packer fans out there with an open roster spot, which the Packers had going into Saturday that thought, yeah maybe you bring in Mason and just promote him, and for anything 40 yards and under, you use him for. And if you try something 45-plus or 50-plus, Mason clearly does not have the leg for that anymore, but perhaps you could use him. In a situation like we saw where it's a 40, 41 yarder and you feel more comfortable with him, Mason makes that kick, right? 41 yarder Mason makes that. I think you could say yes. I don't think Mason loses you the game. If you consider that. if you think that Carlson lost you the game with that missed kick, I don't think Mason does that with the field goals that he would have had to make on Saturday. What did he hit? A 29 yarder, a 31 yarder, and then he missed the 41 yarder? I think Mason makes all those. You have to bring in someone to compete. They're not going to cut bait on him immediately. Going into the offseason, though, and going to training camp, you want that to be a true competition. I don't think Mason is the guy you bring in. Now he's going to be, what, 40 or 41 years old. But you've got to find a veteran, somebody with some experience, somebody to really push Anders Carlson. Remember, his brother is maybe a cautionary tale where the Vikings cut him after a year or two and he missed a big playoff kick. And then he goes on to the Raiders and he's been money pretty much ever since then. But you have to bring in some kind of competition. And then to me, the biggest needs are on defense and the biggest needs are inside linebacker. My guess is Devondre Campbell is probably done. He had that one all-pro year, injury-plagued year last year. He had injuries this year. He appeared to be a step slow. Wasn't hitting quite as hard as he had been that all-pro year. And I would think they go in a different direction there. I think you need a stud inside linebacker, whether you sign somebody or that's another high draft pick to put next to Quay Walker. You need some help there. And then you probably need help at safety. They gambled a bit at safety with Rudy Ford coming into the year, and then we didn't really see him toward the end of the year. Anthony Johnson Jr., the seventh-round pick, saw some playing time. You need some playmakers back there. Darnell... In spots looks good, but this has been the narrative for his entire career. It's a roller coaster. He'll have games like he had against Dallas where he looks like he's an all-pro, and then he'll have games like he kind of had against San Francisco where he drops an easy pick and he misses a tackle here, misses a tackle there, and he's a liability out there. Those are the two, to me, the biggest positions that you need to figure out. An inside linebacker to put next to Quay Walker and some help at safety. Whether that takes the form of free agency or draft picks, I do not know. Those, to me, are the two needs. Cornerback you could certainly throw in there. I don't know how comfortable they are with Valentine and Valentine moving forward. Jair looks like he's locked back in. And who else you maybe have there at corner? Maybe you move Keyshawn Nixon to safety. I've seen some conversation about that. There was conversation heading into the year of moving Rasul Douglas to safety, and Nixon kind of profiles like a diet version of Rasul Douglas. Maybe you test him out at safety or give him a chance to win that. Those are the two spots to me. Certainly you always have a need on the offensive line. Has Rasheed Walker done enough to solidify that he is going to be the left tackle going into next year? I think he probably has, but that doesn't mean you don't spend a second-round pick or a third-round pick on a big offensive tackle if you have the chance to do that. But inside linebacker and safety, to me, those are the two big spots moving forward for this Packer team. Overall, it's hard to be mad. I mean, we're kind of mad, right? It's hard to be, but we are because they had control of that game and lost a game they should have won. But at 2-5 and five or 3-6 and six in the middle of the year, where they were looking like a top-five pick, and maybe you're picking a quarterback top-five with the way things were going at that juncture, to end up in a spot where they have a lead on the one seed in the divisional round of the playoffs. Nobody saw that coming. Overachieved in every way, and now we hope they can keep moving forward heading into the offseason. Man, it makes me sad to say that, <laughs> heading into the offseason. Other games over the weekend, Ravens and Texans tied at halftime, then the Ravens blow their doors off in the second half, 34-10. to 10. The Bucks didn't cover for me. Baker tried. Baker played pretty good. couple of picks. The second one more his fault, obviously, than the first one on a tip. He played pretty well, though. Lions are on their way. And more tears shed, I am sure, at Ford Field, and rightfully so. For that fan base, they finally get a division winner. They finally get a home playoff game. They finally get a home playoff win in wildcard round. And then you get a divisional round win, and they are on their way to the NFC championship game. I cannot imagine Well, I kind of can. 1995 for the Packers when they were on the ascent. I didn't have to suffer through the years before that, though. I guess I would compare what the Lions fans are going through on a personal level. When I think of my time as a diehard Milwaukee Bucks fan, when they finally broke through and made the Eastern Conference Finals in 2019 and had this ascending superstar, maybe that's the comparison where I actually had to sit through 20-plus years of garbage to get where they were going that year. I can't I, – it's hard for me not to feel good for Lions fans. I saw some conversation on my Facebook timeline of Packer fans I know – That said, I'm not going to root for a division rival. Are you kidding me? I'm rooting for the Buccaneers. I'm not going to root for a hated division rival. It's hard for me not to root for Dan Campbell. It's hard for me not to root for a fan base that has been through the wars and has seen nothing but heartbreak and sadness and 0-16 seasons over the course of 30 years. It's difficult for me to not root for that fan base in that instance. They get the win, and they are on their way to the NFC Championship game. And I'm rooting for them against San Fran, too. I realize they're a division rival. My hatred for the Niners, at least in recent history, in the last 10, 15 years, runs way deeper than any hatred I had for the Lions. My hatred for the Lions is just kind of beginning. You know what I mean? For most of my life in the Favre and Rogers era, I know there were some big games there, 2014, I want to say, or 2015. Weren't there back-to-back years where the Packers and Lions played for ostensibly a division title in the final week of the year? Packers won one of those at Lambeau and won one of them at Ford Field. But for most of my life, the Packers had rolled over the lines. I don't even know that I really have a huge hate fire of them. It's maybe smoldering at best. Now, that could change if they continue to win and they continue to make runs and it's at the expense of the Packers. It's just difficult for me not to root for Dan Campbell and not root for a fan base that has been through 40 years of awful football finally getting to enjoy something. Then the nightcap last night, we talked about it off the top. Another wide right for Bills fans. First ever playoff game for Patrick Mahomes on the road. Did you see that luxury box, by the way, with Taylor Swift? And then Jason Kelsey, the Eagle Center, who announced his retirement early in the year, he looked like Frank the Tank from old school up there. His shirt was off. He was in sweatpants. He was house and beers. He went over the top of the guardrail of the luxury box to drink with the fans, and he picked up a 10-year-old, looked like her 8 or 9 or 10-year-old girl who had a Taylor Swift sign and brought her up to the window of the box. They had a Taylor That guy is living the life. That's how you want your retirement to start, just slamming beers with Bills Mafia and screaming out of that luxury box. That was funny to watch when they cut up there. But the Bills end up with a drive late to try and tie or take the lead. They have to kick a field goal, and it goes wide right, and Jim Nance knew it right away, and he brought it all the way back to Scott Norwood on that call. My heart does go out to Bills fans. They cut to the crowd after that. They had the one guy crying who pulled his – his knit hat over his eyes. I'm sure he's a meme already. I'm sure he's been immortalized in meme and gif form. Tough break for him. Tough tough error to be a crying fan in the stands when things like that happen. They will find you, and they will use it against you. It's just unbelievable for that fan base that they can't get past the Chiefs, Allen can't get past Mahomes, and they can't get past wide right. Wide right again as the Chiefs win 27-24. to And Mahomes, for the sixth straight year every year, that Patrick Mahomes has been a starting quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. They have been in the AFC Championship game at minimum. That is Bon Annaland. That leads up to Championship Weekend this weekend. The AFC title game is the early game. That's on CBS at 2 o'clock. Chiefs in Baltimore. Baltimore opening as three-and-a-half-point favorites. Now, can Lamar Jackson get past Patrick Mahomes? I don't know if I have a read on either of these games right now. We'll talk more about this on the Friday podcast. And then the Lions in San Francisco. This is one of those where... Did the Niners just play a bad game in bad conditions on Saturday? Are the Packers better than anybody thought? You know, it's one of those things where the Niners escape with a win and they open as seven-point favorites against the Lions. Well, my betting brain looks at that and says, God, the Packers should have won that game and the Lions are hot and they're catching a touchdown. And then you make a bet, and then on Sunday the Niners are up 17-0 before the first quarter is over, and they really appear to be back in rhythm. It is important to keep in mind for the Niners part of it, they didn't play any of their regulars in the final week of the regular season. They obviously had the only bye in the NFC as the one seed. That was kind of their first real game in three weeks. Maybe they knocked the rust up a bit, they escaped with a win, and they appear to be in better rhythm this weekend. I guess we'll see. Lions are seven-point underdogs. That will be a 5.30 kickoff on Fox on Sunday. Championship Sunday. Yeah, it's a tough weekend. I thought we had a victory Monday. On the Aaron Jones run, I really thought, oh, my God, they're going to do it. And they didn't. Let's talk about the Bucks real quick. They played Saturday afternoon in Detroit against the four-win Pistons, and they had to grind one out, man. 141 to 135. I guess a win is a win. Lillard was outstanding. Lillard had 45 points and 11 assists. He was 50% from beyond the arc. They do enough at the end. Giannis had a near triple-double. They do enough to get a win. You would prefer them not to have to eke one out against a four-win team, a historically bad team. They do get the win. They are 29-13 and 13 on the year with that win. There were rumors over the weekend from ESPN's Chris Haynes that potentially the Bucs are going to engage in trade talks with the Hawks and maybe try to get DeJounte Murray to Milwaukee. That would be an interesting add. The Hawks added him to Trey Young. Is this the second year they've been together? I think it's the second year. So last year was the first year they were together, and they were trying to form this good young guard combo, but the games, their games don't complement each other much, and they're both so... Murray's less ball-dominant than Trey Young is. Trey Young is one of the most ball-dominant guards in the league where he just has to have the ball in his hands to make something happen. It just has not worked. The chemistry has not been there, and they haven't been able to blend those games together. It sounds like Murray's on the block. Murray is a guy who's averaging 21 points a game, and he is an excellent on-ball defender, which the Bucs are desperately in need of. You figure the Bucs will be in these conversations for wing defenders, but I would not have expected them to be there. You had DeJounte Murray. And his defense, hopefully, kind of Drew Holiday-esque defense, that's about how good he is on ball. Not that level. I mean, Holiday is an elite on-ball guard, despite what we saw against Jimmy Butler in the playoffs last year when Jimmy Butler went prime Jordan for about two weeks. Uh, Murray is up there in terms of good on-ball defenders with decent size as a guard, and he can maybe give you 20-plus a game in addition to Lillard and Giannis and all the other offensive weapons this Bucks team has. That would be quite a get. I don't know what it would cost. The Bucs do have a little draft capital, They would have to include either Bobby or Connaughton in that deal. It would be tough to see either of them go because they played such integral roles on that title team. But we're at a point now as Bucks fans where we need to try to remove our emotion from that. You know what I mean? We're two years removed now from that title. And I think Giannis even said it heading into this year when somebody on a podcast was asking about that championship team, he basically cut them off and said, that's old news, man. I mean, that's two years ago now. We're heading into three years being removed from that. We need to stop talking about that and move on to the next championship Fans probably have to do that a little bit, too, with some of the key pieces on that title team that are still on the team now. We all love Bobby Portis. We all love the big old eyes and the fact that he's willing to mix it up and he's going to get in a fight with somebody if they go after Giannis or one of the key players. Bobby, Bobby. We all love it. There's a WWE factor there with Bobby Portis that we all love and how important and crucial he was on those title teams. It is clear that this team's defense is not very good right now, and I don't know how much better it's going to get. We're more than halfway through the year now. And the defense is especially bad when they go to the bench unit. That includes Bobby Portis and Pat Connaughton. Bobby's probably the more tradable chip because if he goes to Atlanta – He's going to give you, if he gets more minutes, he's only playing 24, 25 minutes, and he's just about averaging a double-double. If he got the minutes, if he got 30-plus minutes a night, he's a guy who would give you 15 and 10. And he's still not, not an old player. He's not young, but he's in his late 20s, I think, or maybe just at 30 years old. To me, he's a more usable piece. Connaughton at this point in his career is more of a 15, 18-minute guy off the bench. He'll knock down a couple threes. His defense has dipped a lot since that championship run of 2021 where he was maybe a mediocre or just a little bit above that in terms of on-ball defense. It has not been good for Connaughton in the last couple of years. I don't understand how he bites on every pump fake. If you watch these games and somebody hits Patty Connaughton with a pump fake, he flies past him every time. Every time he does it. So of those two, if you combo one of them up with a trade, with a draft pick and a trade, I would think Bobby is the more tradable chip that another team would view as more useful. If this team is just looking to cut a little salary, maybe you include two picks, one of those magical second-round picks that seem to grow on trees. And you throw Connaughton then that team cuts Connaughton and they're just in for the draft capital. I don't know. I don't know what it would cost to get a player of Murray's caliber or of Alex Caruso's caliber from the Bulls. That would be another nice get for this team. A guy who can knock down threes and is an elite on-ball defender. There are rumors that P.J. Tucker, he's not playing in L.A. in the clip for the Clippers right now. There are rumors he might be a buyout or they just buy him out of his contract and he could be a street-free agent. Do you have any interest in seeing P.J. Tucker come back? Probably part of that same conversation of we need to detach ourselves a little bit from the heroes of that 20. 21 team. Uh, now 39-year-old P.J. Tucker, do you want him back? Would he even be the difference defensively? Probably not. But Murray would be an interesting piece, a guy who is a good defender and a guy who could also score 20. He wouldn't have to do that in Milwaukee. I mean, I'd be surprised if he averages 20 or 21 if you were to come to Milwaukee. But that was an interesting conversation on Twitter over the weekend as well, that maybe the Bucs are in on him. No deal seems imminent, but the trade deadline is not far away. Bucks in Detroit for the second of two in a row against the Pistons tonight, it is a 6 o'clock tip time. And then they have the back-to-back games against the Cavs, who they just played last Wednesday. They'll be at home at 5 serve, taking on the Cavs on Wednesday and Friday. Those are both 7 o'clock tip times this week. College hoops real quick. Badgers got a win on Friday. I guess Vegas was right. We talked about it on the Friday podcast. God, 11 points seems like a lot for them to catch. Well, they won by 12. 91-79. to 79. How does Vegas do it? They get another win. They are 14-4 and four on the year. I don't think the new top 25s come out until about noon. They were at number 11. They go 1-1 one and one on the week with the loss at Penn State last Tuesday. Oh, they are out. Is this new? Week 11. Oh, no, these are not. These are not new yet. They were 11th in the AP, and they were 8th in the coaches. poll. I didn't realize they were all up to 8th in the coaches poll. on the year, Marquette got a big win at St. John's on Saturday. They had to hold on. It looked like they were in control, up by almost 10 points with a few minutes left. They had to hang on and avoid a game winner from St. John's at the end of that game. Rick Patino's going to get that team back to being an 18-20 win team and a tournament team in no time. But Marquette able to get a win, back-to-back wins now over Villanova, and on the road at St. John's, they win 73-72. They are at DePaul. DePaul is winless in the Big East right now at 0-7. They are at DePaul on Wednesday and 8 o'clock tip time. That'll do it for us here on a disappointing Monday, not a victory Monday. We'll come back after it on Friday. We'll preview championship weekend. We'll talk about the Bucks week that was as we get closer to the trade deadline. I guess it's basketball season now. Well, we've got two top 25 teams, and we've got the number two team in the East in the NBA. At least we do have that. At least we've got that. Daytona's only a few weeks away if you're in NASCAR. And spring training before you know it. We'll be talking about all of that on Friday. Have a happy, safe work week. We'll chat with you then.